Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You are listening to the Gospel Addict Podcast, where we are passionate about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and we we know that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's the A to Z of the Christian life. On this episode, I'm joined with two other men, Tom Petersburg and Hollis Half. Tom is going to assist me as a co-host as together we interview Hollis. Men, while most of our listeners are in the U.S. and Canada, I just want to share with you that in the last 30 days, people have listened from the following countries. The U.K., Spain, France, Italy, Germany, Croatia, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Botswana, South Africa, Pakistan, India, Australia, and New Zealand. And that's one of the things that gets me excited about this podcast is just how it has a worldwide reach. I would be thrilled if people listening to this podcast would get involved with what the kind of work that both you men are doing. Tom gives leadership to Catapult Ministries. Catapult Ministries exists to advance discipleship. They desire to see people grow in an awareness that God has not only called us into a relationship with him, but he has uniquely shaped us, gifted us, and positioned us to serve him for his glory. If you want to learn more about Tom's ministry, go to catapultministries.org. We're here to talk to Hollis, and thank you, Hollis, for making the time to to be on this episode. He graduated from West, West Virginia University and actually played on the Mountaineers' 15th nationally ranked Peach Bowl championship team. Wow, that's pretty pretty amazing. Hollis, what was your position on the team? I was tight end. You were a tight end. Okay. You you went on from there and you've been in, in various ministries. You've served as a pastor. You've been a chaplain for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pirates. But currently you work for the Bonhoeffer Project, which is something we're, we want to learn a lot more about. Great to be with both of you guys this evening. Let's begin with you, Tom, because you were the one who connected me with Hollis why don't you share with our audience how the two of you know each other and why you thought he would be a good guest for this podcast? I came out of the campus ministry at Vanderbilt University in 1979. Athletes in Action asked if I would consider being a chaplain to the pro teams in Cleveland. And so they connected me with Hollis. Hollis was already one of the uh, staff guys, one of the chaplains in the NFL. He was one of five men who were pioneers as chaplains in the entire NFL and uh, had opened chaplaincy. So I flew into Pittsburgh uh, in uh, 1979 in uh, April or May, and Hollis and I drove to Cleveland, and we met with uh, some of the men with the Cleveland Indians and the visiting team that day. Hollis had also been in touch with the head coach of the Browns, Sam Bertigliano. And so Hollis took the role of kind of introducing me to the Cleveland teams and uh, kind of orienting me to ministry. So it was Hollis who kind of uh, set my feet on the ground and gave me some direction. Wow, that is so cool. And Hollis, you know, I want to learn about the Bonhoeffer Project, but I'm really interested also in learning about those early days when you were a chaplain. 
Um, now, I've got to be honest with you. I was born in Pittsburgh. Um, I would have gone to Montour High School if I would have uh, grew up there, which I'm sure you, you've heard of that high school. I ended up moving to Akron, Ohio when I was 10 years old. So, but I'm a diehard Steelers and Pirates fan. So let me just throw out this question right off the top. Did you, did Terry Bradshaw, was he ever involved in, in your ministry when you were a chaplain? Uh, yeah, he was, he was actually, uh, at the core of it at the very beginning. Um, we had some of our earliest Bible studies at, uh, Terry's apartment downtown and would gather there for Bible studies. He was, uh, uh, I got there in 1974, Greg, which was good timing because that was when Terry was benched. He was going through some, uh, challenges. Um, and so he connected with me because I was a Christian. I told him what I wanted to do. And so he started immediately introducing me as the chaplain, the new chaplain of the Steelers. Well, once Terry <laughs> introduces you as the chaplain of the Steelers, it kind of sticks. <clears throat> and you might remember that was, uh, uh, that was the first year they went to the Super Bowl. So the first four of six years that I was there, the Steelers won a Super Bowl. So they couldn't really accuse me of, you know, messing them up any. And uh, so, uh, yeah, he was very involved. Uh, on Mondays, we would go down and ca I'd catch passes from him because no one else wanted to go in and loosen them up. So we had a very, uh, very close relationship during those early years. That is so cool. That is so great to hear because that, that those were the years when I was a young, a young kid cheering for the the Steelers because those were those were great days for the Steelers like you mentioned all the Super Bowls they won and and such. Are there any other stories like as you think back and you you were also a chaplain for the Pirates? Did you do that at the same time? Yeah, I did. I, I actually did some some work with the Penguins too, although they were a much harder team to crack. <laughs> so, do you have any other interesting stories just from that? as you look back and you don't have to mention people's names, but just stories of, you know, how you saw God work or even, even maybe mistakes you made um, as a young chaplain. Yeah. I made, I made plenty of mistakes. In fact, uh, I, I often look back now and think that some of what I'm doing now in discipleship, you know, grew out of some of those early mistakes, but I also saw God's hand in it pretty powerfully. Uh, when I grew up, as a kid, grew up in Ohio, around Sandusky, a little town called Bellevue. Um, there, you could count the Christian athletes in pro football, pro baseball ranks on you know probably one hand. There was Raymond Berry and Bill Glass, and you know a few others. Uh, but uh, so when we became part of that pioneering movement um, in, in 1974. Um, there were just five of us and, and it was like, you know, it, it was, uh, almost like a missionary operation. Uh, but you know, when I look back now, when I watch the uh, hall of fame presentation each year, I'm always struck by how many guys get up and give testimony to their faith in Christ. It's, it's, it's normative now for teams to have significant contingents of Christians, and uh, all that changed when, you know, when we kind of, you know, kind of took God at, at, at his word, you know, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples. And so uh, even though I had a lot of anxiety as a young 20 year old kid, you know, trying to walk into a professional franchise, 
you know, that kind of gave uh, some steel to my backbone to say, no, God's, you know, God's for me here and he's going to go before me. And, uh, you know, you did see just all kinds of uh, uh, amazing things happen. Uh, we established a chapel program early on and that grew from, you know, three or four guys to 25 in, within a year. Um, we started having, uh, you know, small groups where their wives could come and take part. Um, we, we even had discipleship groups early on. We, we began doing outreach programs. We had high school assembly programs, did over 300 high school assemblies in the tri-state area. Uh, we did a football camp. And, and when I look back and think, you know, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? The one thing we did right was we got, we got these pro athletes as they started to come to Christ, you know, out involved in sharing their faith and taking advantage of the platform that they have as professional athletes. And when we, when I look back now, there's probably a dozen or more guys that I work with that are, you know, might as well be in ministry. If they're not officially in ministry, that's what they're doing. And I think the reason is because their early experiences were that they found so much satisfaction uh, in being able to be involved in the changing of other people's lives, uh, that, that they made easier transitions into post-football life. Um, uh, they, you know, they stuck with their faith over the long haul. So, so you know, that I think was one of the best things I did. Um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably get into, you know, maybe some of the things I would have done differently as we get into Bonhoeffer, uh, because that's, uh, uh, that's become a kind of a clarifying um, experience for me to look back and to see why is it that the church as a whole is having such a hard time um, with the core ministry of the church. You know, it's what Jesus said was the core mission of the church, and yet less than 1% of pastors think we're doing a good good job with it. So how do you explain that disconnect? And that bothered me, uh, you know, all through my years with Athletes in Action when Tom and I were working with the same organization. And then as I became a church planner for the next uh, 20 some years, and then just in the last few years, I've, you know, transitioned into the Bonhoeffer Project where, where I actually work with uh, pastors and Christian leaders. But uh, I've got that, you know, history behind me uh, to see, you know, what things we did wrong and what, what, what things really helped. That's great. Yeah, I think, um, and I, I'm excited to get to this because I think one of the things that you've identified is how we've separated salvation from discipleship. Yeah. And uh, we, we made the mistake where we emphasize personal salvation and then we have kind of, uh, you know, discipleship is is uh just been left out and um the uh tom do you have any any you know can you think of any stories when hollis was training you like um did you did you go to one of his uh services when he was a chaplain did you observe him no no he would have uh we probably would have been on the phone from a distance uh after my first year there uh the the outreaches that hollis talked about in some of the uh, high school campuses they, they would take athletes, three or four athletes into a school, and they would compete against some of the athletes in the school in a number of events in a, in a gymnasium. So mm -hmm. they'd have the whole school there. And then the players would share their testimony in between events. But it was the competition that really engaged the students and so on. 
So one of uh, Hollis's training was to come with me. And so we went down to a little town about an hour and a half from Cleveland called Worcester. And uh, Hollis had a, one of his players come there. And I had a couple guys from Cleveland come. And we spent three days in the Worcester area. Uh, I think we did about three schools a day. Uh, but at the end of the first day, we didn't do a school. We did a, a, a home for troubled boys. And uh, the next morning at breakfast, Hollis said, uh, the, the player that he brought along with him, uh, one of the active players from the Steelers, so how you sleep well last night. How are you doing this morning? And he said, well, not well. I didn't sleep at all. He said, my family has a farm in Georgia, and God has convicted me that we need to turn that into a boy's home. And, uh, and he's done that. He has both a boy's home for troubled kids in Pittsburgh and one in Georgia. Even to this day, I, I've talked with players that uh, when they come in as rookies at the Steelers, they make a visit to those places and uh, see what impact a player has in the community. So a lot of a lot of the things that I got from from Hollis and from other guys would have been during conferences and during events that we did together. It was it was a very active time. I think the thing that drove it was something that Hollis said the very day that we met and drove into Cleveland. He said, the players are the basis of your ministry, not the scope of it. Oh. So the whole point was to build disciple players, equip them to have a ministry. And they were the ones that had the impact in the world. And, and it's really, it, it's a, it's a similar picture in discipleship. It's, and I think that's what's always excited me about discipleship. It's, it's, I love the guys I'm discipling, but they're they're just the basis of it. Those guys are are going to multiply and have another guy and another guy, and it spreads. Yeah, the it, the the fellow that Tom was referring to uh, had to be Mel Blount. Yes, and uh, yeah, Mel Mel has those two boys uh, camps going today, and and I think that's a great example of how when you get people out doing ministry and just rubbing shoulders with kids and others that they can have an impact on. Um, it, it, it is very impactful. It's very formative. And uh, they just begin to gravitate to ministry because they find great joy in it. That's cool. You know, one of the things that impresses me about the, the Steelers in particular is just uh, they, they just seem like a real family atmosphere. And the way they can keep a coach for so long and they keep a quarterback for so long. Um, did, was it that way when you were, when you were there? Yeah, that's, that's when the change was happening. And that's what happens when you become a winning franchise, <laughs> you know, they, they both kind of feed each other, but I think the Roonies, uh, you know, long-term ownership and they're kind of, you know, very down to earth, um, you know, Pittsburgh kind of family. Uh, you know, it certainly fueled that the fact that they've had, you know, the, you know, only a handful of coaches in their whole history, uh, you know, fuels that. Uh, and the, Pits the the town of Pittsburgh is, is very much like that. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think even among, you know, insiders in football players themselves, they would say, oh, I would love to play in Pittsburgh because they really take care of their people. It seems that way. It seems that way. Well, let's um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about how did you end up with the Bonhoeffer Project? It seems like you've had a lot of ministry experiences, great ministry experiences. But what was it about the Bonhoeffer Project that drew you in? 
Well, I, I did. I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful experience with Athletes in Action, um, you know, working with the pro athletes. Um, I, I had, uh, you know, wonderful um, success in many ways with uh, uh, church planning, planning two different churches. And, and people would kind of say that. They would say, well, my, you've had such a wonderful ministry. But I would always look back and say, um, in fact, I remember our, at a staff meeting once, someone said, you don't seem... Uh, you, you don't seem happy. And I said, oh, I'm happy. I'm just not satisfied because I see too much of a disconnect between what we're doing and getting praised for and uh, what I see in the New Testament. And, you know, I, they, I said, they, they would always come back and say, but, you know, everybody says this is such a great church. Or, you know, and I'd say, well, we're, we're the tallest midget. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, relatively everyone is flunking this course and, and we were at least trying to do some things and, and having occasional success here and there, but we were in nothing more than the tallest midget. There were some huge gaps in our discipleship. And so, uh, you know, I think that what, what brought me to answer your question, Greg, what, what really, uh, intrigued me with the Bonhoeffer project was that it, at one point after I had, uh, founded uh, a second church uh, called New Community Church uh, and served there for 13 years or just, I, I think it was just into 13 years as senior pastor. Um, I, I had a very capable guy, you know, with me, who'd been with me for, you know, even at the past church. Uh, so I said, I, I want to make a switch here. I, I, I was 63 years old, I think at the time I said, I don't want to retire but I want to step back and get out of trying to run the business of the church. <laughs> you know, I want to get back to doing what I got in the ministry to do, which was to disciple men. And, uh, and, and it just became obvious that it was, it was too challenging to you're being pulled in all these different directions when you're senior pastor. Uh, so my, my associate took over, uh, has done a great job. We're getting ready for another succession now. And uh, uh, I was able to focus you know, just completely on discipleship and trying to crack this problem of why are we not doing a better job at discipleship? Not just us, but the church at large. So I, I, I took a sabbatical. I read all kinds of books. I, I uh, attended a bunch of conferences. I talked to pastors up and down the East Coast. And, you know, it became obvious that I was not the only one that was having this frustration. Uh, it was pervasive. Everybody I talked to was frustrated with it. And uh, so at one point, a number of years into it, in fact, I was 69, so it's like six years later, um, I, I began to think, well, you know, my former boss, Bill Hall, who was my first director with Athletes in Action, and Bill had played with our basketball team, and uh, then he spent a year as a director with the pro sports teams. And then he went to seminary. He became a, a pastor, author, wrote a couple books on discipleship. And because we'd had that early connection, I read a couple of his books and found them helpful. Uh, but I began to think, you know, I wonder if Bill's still alive. <laughs> and and uh, so I Googled him. And sure enough, it pops up the Bonhoeffer Project and another group called Discipleship.org. And uh, so the more I read, the more intrigued I got. Uh, I showed up at the National Discipleship Forum in Nashville uh, was it three years ago now, I guess. And uh, 
I, I walked up to him and said, I'm Hollis Happ. Do you remember me? And in fact, his his comment was, uh, I, how could I forget you? You and you, you and I had breakfast with Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> so, um, you know, we reconnected after like 40 years. And as I sat and I listened to the breakout sessions that that he led and some others in the organization, I I realized that my prayer of all those years was being answered. He was speaking directly to some of the frustrations that I'd had with disciple making. Uh, he was giving me compelling answers. He was backing it up with scripture. And uh, so I, I left that conference kind of convinced that God led me there and that God was going to use that in a pretty significant way. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those issues. Because I think there are real issues, especially in the American church, yeah. when it comes to um, the gospel that we teach. Um, so let's start unpacking those and, yeah. and how they relate to the. Well, maybe we should maybe we should backtrack a little bit and talk about why it's called the Bonhoeffer Project. That might be confusing to people because it, it's not it's not the typical name for a ministry, you know. Yeah. You, want to, you want to explain that to people? <laughs> yeah, uh, we're not we're not Lutherans and we're not neo Orthodox, but we we are big fans of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Bill Hall read uh, the cost of discipleship when he was a young Christian. It made such a, a an impact on him uh, that he wanted to honor Bonhoeffer by naming uh, the organization and many of his. Uh, Bonhoeffer's emphases, uh, you know, his book on his uh, cost of discipleship was really an attack on cheap grace, this kind of antinomianism, uh, you know, kind of against the law, um, this, this reductionism of uh, the gospel message. Uh, and, and, and we see the same thing uh, in our own, you know, American culture today. Uh, Bonhoeffer was also committed to training pastors and uh, Christian leaders. He started a, a seminary called uh, Finkenwald. It was an underground seminary because they had to stay clear of the Gestapo. Um, uh, but I think there was that, that combination between his message and his methodology, um, which was he, he saw a need for uh, a renewal in the way people were being trained for ministry, not just to get a lot of head knowledge, but to be formed and shaped uh, in what he called a new monasticism. And, and by that, he simply meant that there was a, you know, the, the discipleship was all about discipline. And uh, it was about, you know, uh, forming disciplines that would shape our souls. And he understood that. And he, he brought that to that seminary and it really did shape the lives of young men. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tom, do you, do you have anything to say about Bonhoeffer? Did you read that book? Yes, I read that. Classic, and I, classic book. And then more recently, his uh, biography. I really, <clears throat> excuse me, I really enjoyed that. I think there was just great insights into his commitment. Yeah. So, um, all right. So you explain why it's called the Bonhoeffer Project. <laughs> what are some of the issues that they're they're really addressing? And I know, I know, um, you do these cohorts for ten months. A group of men will meet together. Do they meet yeah. monthly or weekly? Monthly. Yeah. Monthly. Yeah. Let me, let me let me back up a little bit and I can kind of segue with, uh, you know, another point of connection with Bonhoeffer uh, that, that is even more germane to the present situation. 
one, one of the things that's attractive about Bonhoeffer behind, beyond just the, the message, the clarity of his message, his methodology was his character. He, he, he exercised a certain moral courage in the midst of, you know, overwhelming pressure against the, you know, the Third Reich. I mean, he was born in the lap of luxury. He could have lived a life of comfort and ease, but he chose to leave that and to go back to, to Germany to, you know, pretty much sign a death, death warrant. And uh, uh, there's a great need in our day for that kind of moral courage. So, so he, he also sort of props that up. But let me take your next question, which was, so what, what, what's the problem you're trying to address? And you, you actually referenced it early on. You, uh, you, you talked about uh, what we need is not more the ABCs of the gospel, but the A through Z of the gospel, which is a quote from Tim Keller that I love too, and I use all the time, uh, because it, it, it frames the problem. The problem is we have reduced the gospel to a couple of simple steps that we could call a plan of salvation. Uh, and, and the gospel is much bigger than that. Uh, the gospel, when you, know, when you just think of the word gospel, oh, well, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the story of Jesus, and the story of Jesus is much richer than just a couple of propositional truths like God loves you, you're separated from God because of your sin, Jesus died to bridge the chasm between you and God, and you need to ask him into your life. Now, that's all true, but when you make part of the truth all the truth, it becomes an untruth. And there's much more to the gospel than that. And that's what Keller was getting at with that line about the A through Z of the gospel. I look back on my own experience. I had seen the graffiti on the walls. I had heard the talks where people would give the ABCs of the gospel. And, and quite frankly, all it did was leave me with a little bit of guilt, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until I began really hearing people teach the Bible and, uh, uh, you know, you know, begin to dig into the illust illustration of the great truths of, of Scripture and their application that oh, all of a sudden, you know, those aha moments began coming, you know, fast and furious. And that's when change really uh, took place in the trajectory of my discipleship took off. So. The, the problem simply stated is that we have created a, a, a separation between conversion and discipleship. We've given people the idea that if you simply say this prayer, uh, you know, sort of agree to this plan of salvation, that Jesus will come into your life and you'll be eternally secure. You go to heaven when you die, die your sins will be forgiven. And, and yet there's so much more that that misses that it, it makes sense. And, and, and one of our key lines is that the gospel you preach will determine uh, the disciples that you make. And if you look at the landscape, the spiritual landscape in America today, or for that matter, around the world, uh, you see it littered with all these kinds of what we would call false gospels, partial gospels. It's not that they're totally false. It's just that they don't say enough. So, you know, we can we can talk about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, ask a question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate uh, and I agree. I agree with what you're sharing. I think this is a really important. Um, it We need to clarify these things. And so part of what the Bonhoeffer project does is 
brings leaders together to really clarify. You spent some good time explaining what is the gospel and that the gospel does involve discipleship. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, Tom, have you, have you have you seen this issue in your ministry? Oh, yeah, I really have. I, I can I can think of days just being in a locker room. I mean, it, uh, it got to be where I would rarely ask a player if he was a Christian. You'd rather get in a conversation with them and, and begin to talk about following Christ. And you found you found the guys that not only understood the gospel, but they were following through with it. Uh, and they were, be, they were they'd become learners and followers. Uh, you know, one of the words for disciple is a learner. And so you, you, you could see a very distinct difference between the players, the, the guys that embraced the whole thing and the guys that, well, yeah, I, I went forward at a church or and um, you're not always sure what what really happened in their lives. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.